Let us hear the word of God, reading from 2 Samuel, chapter 12, and verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. He brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his meagre fare, and drink from his cup, and lie in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveller to the rich man, and he was loath to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared that for the guest who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. And the second reading is from Luke chapter 18 and reading from verse 9. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. In July 1979, I was appointed to my first church in the East End of Glasgow. 
an area of multiple social and economic deprivation. The community of Garthamluk was considered at that time to be one of the poorest communities in Western Europe. Several months after my appointment, I wrote to the mission secretary at the Church of Scotland offices in Edinburgh, reminding him that when I had been appointed, he had offered me some help. My letter arrived on Ian Doyle's desk on the same morning as a letter from the Reverend Professor John Bartholomew. John wrote indicating that he was due some sabbatical leave from his university post, that he was coming to Scotland, that he was an ordained Presbyterian minister, that he would be happy to help a congregation in the Church of Scotland if such help was required. One letter asking for help, another letter offering help. Ian Doyle stapled the two letters together. <laughs> of such things is the providence of God. And almost 40 years later, the Barr family and the Bartholomew family remain close friends. Of such things is the grace of God. So at the beginning of what is, for Margaret and me, a moratorial visit, which will take us from Jacksonville to Louisville, to New York, to Princeton, and finally to Toronto, it is a delight for us to spend a few days with John and Mary at their home in Orange Park. And it is an honor to be your guest preacher at Riverside this morning, and my great privilege as moderator to bring you the greetings, the prayers, and the good wishes of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland. And as a little symbol of that greeting, as a little symbol of that welcome, and as a little symbol of the faith that we share together, we also bring a little gift. Margaret, if you would like to present Steve with the gift... And Steve, you have to have your best Scottish accent now, <laughs> because this is a little drinking cup, which in Scotland is known as a quake. Quake? Nearly. <laughs> a quake. Quake. You'll need to work on it. A bit like your putting, you need to work on it, Steve. Thank you. But it comes as a little gift from us to you a symbol of friendship, of faith, and of Christian love. Searching thoughtfully, serving passionately, living joyfully, following Christ. I'm sure you recognize these words as your congregation's motto. And when I found them on your website, you have no idea how much they cheered me up. Although it may seem a strange thing for a moderator to say, it is not 
people questioning and doubting and asking and wondering that troubles me. It's people who claim certainty, who think they found the answer. You see, I find seekers after truth make for very good companions on the journey of faith and life. And so, in the company of those who are searching thoughtfully, let me wonder with you, let me ask what you make of Luke's dramatic account of the two men who went to pray. The story awakens for me the memory of a pastoral visit I once paid to a woman in my congregation. She was recovering from life-threatening surgery. I went to visit her and sat at her hospital bedside. On taking my leave, I paused for a few moments in the hospital chapel, where I was joined by the woman's surgeon. We exchanged a few words, and then the surgeon asked if I had come to pray, to pray for the woman who was my parishioner, for the woman who was his patient. Yes, I have, he said, I said. I've come to pray for her. Good, he replied, and so have I. And laying down his mat toward Mecca, he knelt down to pray. Two men went to pray. And in that hospital chapel, did God hear the prayer of the Christian minister? Or did God hear the prayer of the Muslim surgeon? Was one prayer more important to God than the other? Two men went to pray. And with his usual economy of words, Luke paints beautifully. And like caricatures in a cartoon, he sets the scene that we can visualize it. Because the contrast between the two men, the two figures, could hardly be greater. The Pharisee is confident and self-assured, having examined himself carefully. He likes what he finds. He's proud of what he's become, a good, upright, law-abiding, decent, God-fearing man. By any standards of decency, the Pharisee has every reason to feel pleased because committed to his faith, committed to his religious tradition, it is evident he has studied the law in great detail. He's modeled his behavior accordingly. The Pharisee is a pious and holy man. He's the very opposite of the robbers, the evildoers, the adulterers that so offend him. And he's confident, confident that every aspect of his life is consistent with the teachings and precepts of the Torah, of the law. 
And furthermore, having attained such high and holy standards, he's quite sure he's going to keep them. He fasts twice a week. He tithes a tenth of his income. He's already doing more than what is asked of him. He is a good, a pious, a holy man. There's evidence to prove it. And if that wasn't enough, having measured himself and exceeded the standards expected, he's very grateful not to be like that poor, wretched tax collector he sees standing over at the other side of the temple. So look across Luke's picture. Look from the Pharisee to the tax collector, and what do you see? You see a man bowed down, despondent. Everything about his body language, his refusal to look up, his beating, his chest in despair, everything speaks of his self-loathing. He's despised by his fellow men and women. He's in the employment of the occupying Roman army. He's failed to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with his God. He is in no doubt where he stands, not just before other people, but before God. Have mercy on me, he pleads, a sinner. Two men went to pray. And although the Gospels often depict the Pharisees in a very poor light, they were, in fact, a group of well-educated men who were serious about their faith, who wanted people to be serious about it too. And at their best, they sought to honor God, not just in the synagogue, but at home and at their places of work not just in the temple, but with their family, their neighbors, their colleagues, their friends. And is that wholeness, is that integrity of life not something to which we would inspire and something which we would encourage in one another? Is that wholeness, integrity, and integrity of life not something embraced in your motto, about living joyfully and searching thoughtfully and serving passionately. At its best, at our best, our faith isn't just concerned with what happens here in our church of a Sunday. It embraces and informs every aspect of our living, public as well as private, our politics as well, as our personal relationships. So, if not the all-embracing nature of the Pharisees' faith, what was it that so upset Jesus? I think it was this. I think what upset him was the Pharisees' capacity to lose sight, to lose sight of the radical grace and love of God, and to turn it instead into a stultifying straitjacket of rules and regulations. What had been intended to liberate people 
to live fully, to live well, was instead weighing them down. They could rescue an animal if it fell into the ditch of a, of a Sabbath. But how dare Jesus rescue somebody who'd been crippled if the healing took place on the Sabbath as well? What kind of faith is that, Jesus wondered? What kind of God do they think they're honoring? As I've tried to read it, distance is one of the elements that appears to me to be significant in this parable. The Pharisee kept his distance from the tax collector, while the tax collector not only stood at a distance, but was probably kept at a distance by everybody else in the congregation. And yet, as it unfolds, the parable suggests a surprisingly different distance. The distance between the two men and the God to whom they'd come to pray. Seeing only what separated them, the Pharisee failed to recognize what he shared in common with the tax collector, that he too, he too stood in fear of divine judgment and in need of divine mercy. And fearful of that judgment, the tax collector thought himself beyond, beyond the reach of God's forgiveness, of God's compassion, and of God's love. Seeing only what separates us. The surprising and perhaps shocking claim of this parable is that God's radical grace and love does not observe the boundaries, the limitations that we might like to place upon it. Seeing only what separates us. As the parable unfolds, it transpires that there is much for both men to learn. Not least, not least that they were fellow travelers on the journey of faith and life. And there is, I suspect, much for us all to learn in this parable, seeing beyond what separates us, seeing that there are fellow travelers on the road, the people of the way, the people of God's way, searching thoughtfully on the road of faith and hope and love. As once in Jerusalem's temple, so also in a hospital chapel, two men went to pray. And our prayers were answered. For the woman made a good recovery from her life-threatening surgery, was it the prayer of the Christian minister that was answered? Was it the prayer of the Muslim surgeon that was answered? Or was it simply the heartfelt petition 
of two men asking that someone who was very ill would be held in God's healing, in God's presence, and in God's power. Let us pray. Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, and to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen.